if you need any argument whatsoever as to why we need to reduce the number of cars in our streets, it's because our absolute most vulnerable citizens, our children, are being robbed of their childhood. Our cars are more important than they are. We'll continue to share that message for as long as we can to help cities find a sustainable and human scale path forward. We're in this position now where we get to be the teacher, if you will, and help cities understand why this matters and how it can be done at a speed and a success level that uh, maybe the Netherlands didn't have when it first was getting started in the 1970s. Chris and Melissa Brundtland. Welcome. Thank you for coming on Bike Talk. Thanks for having us. Hey, you caught us on this glorious July day, and we're just, it's good to be with you. Yeah. Thank you. And you're from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to think that you're actually where you have written about. Yeah, I think it's one thing to write about and lust after a place for years as we did, but then to come here and, and, well, sitting right here, we're just watching the bikes float by on the street. It's, uh, it's quite something. We don't take it for granted at all. You have worked in Los Angeles before, which is where we're kind of based. Yeah, we, we found ourselves coming down to LA a couple times for presentations and film screenings of, of work that we've done in the past. Um, because at the time, Vancouver was really quite an exciting place to be as a cycle advocate. And I think cities like Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco were interested to hear about the progress was being made there and what they could learn to help mm-hmm. their cities more bike friendly. So that's kind of your mission, right, is to help cities become more bike friendly. Our focus now is to get cities to become less car dependent and more more friendly for cycling but also for walking and and public transport as well seeing the whole sort of human scale mobility picture do you want to say the title (laughs) sure the title is curbing traffic the human case for fewer cars in our lives can you explain a little bit about your thinking on what it means to say the human case so our first book was very much talking about uh, the cycling developments here in the Netherlands uh, that helped it to get to the stage that it's at uh, in terms of policies and, and design and various other infrastructures that were put in place to make it very cycling friendly here and cycling paradise, as a lot of people will call it. And then after moving here in 2019, um, Chris and I obviously really reveled in the environment that was around us because of these policies and developments. But what we found is that a lot of the quality of life we knew we were going to gain in terms of being able to walk more and cycle more to reach destinations and what impact that would have on, you know, hopefully reducing stress and making us more connected. The level at which that happened was so much greater that for us, the stories that we put into curbing traffic and the research that we put in there is very much focused on the impact car dominance has on us as individuals, both in terms of our physical health, obviously, but also our mental health, our social connection, and, and just our overall well-being as, as individuals and as a collective. And so it was really important in the title to have human because it's, it's not just about how we move, but it's the impact of our transport systems on our individual selves. For the past 60 years, we've been building cities for machines and completely forgotten about the human element. So I think it was our intention to remind urban and transportation planners, engineers, anybody working in city building or interested in city building, that this has to switch. If our cities are going to be successful in the 21st century, 
Um, we have to start designing them at a different scale with a different priority in mind. Um, and even the bicycle itself, you know, it, it's not about the bicycle. It, the bicycle is a vehicle, a tool, another type of machine. It mm -hmm. just so happens that Dutch cities use this machine to make their cities more human scale and human friendly. So that was the conversation we we're hoping to start. And, and from what we've seen, the initial reactions of the book, I think largely we've, uh, we've succeeded. You have shown in this book how many different things are implicated. It's amazing how you can trace almost every problem or good thing to the way we get around. You talk about a uh, low car city in the introduction. It's a child friendly city. It's a connected city. It's a trusting city, a feminist city, a hearing city, meaning that you can hear without the traffic noise. It's a therapeutic city involved. I mean, it, it fosters mental health. It's accessible. You talk about people with, who aren't able to get around by cars. It's a prosperous city. You talk about economics, a resilient city, an aging city. And you talk about people who aren't always going to be able to drive. Literally everything is affected by really cars. Yeah, our, our intention was very much, I mean, it always has been to try to dispel a lot of the arguments that people can make when we talk about making things more cycle friendly or reducing cars in our cities. Or, or communities in general, um, you know, there's always, whether in good faith or bad faith, there's always these article or these comments rather um, about how, okay, cycling friendly cities are great for the able-bodied, but what about people with disabilities or cycle friendly cities are great for the, you know, average adult between 25 and 50, but what about everyone else? And, uh, or it's really great for white people, but it's not great for people of color. And so, you know, that, I think that's one area we could have delved into more, but we didn't feel the right people to write those stories, but we wanted to scratch the surface and talk about how with each of these various categories of people, when we focus so much on making sure that or demanding that everyone drives to get everywhere, we leave out the portions of people that can't drive, whether that's for physical reasons, age reasons, or otherwise. Uh, and then we unfairly put a burden on those that are living with lower means or lower access to vehicle motor vehicles um, to participate in society they need to have a car the way this our cities have been historically designed and so we just need we wanted to make sure that the story really helped to make the case as to why it can't always be well this group needs access to a car in order to do this or this group needs access to a car to do that it's about the fact that there are all these people where there's a solution that in, involves having less cars in our city. Uh, so I think that was why, I think we, there's def definitely more that we could say about it. I mean, you can only write so much per chapter. And, and we do feel like each of these 10 chapters could have been a book in and of itself. Yeah. We started doing the research and it'd be naive to say that changing the way we get around would single-handedly fix the loneliness epidemic or the mental health epidemic or the helicopter parenting epidemic or any of these problems that we identify. But the problem is right now, we're not even considering those things. Uh, when we make our, our mobility and, and urban planning decisions in our cities, all we're talking about is moving the maximum number of people as efficiently as possible or getting the maximum number of cars through uh, from A to B, dealing with rush hour traffic and, and very narrowly focus on uh, engineering and, and economic problems when we point out there's 
this whole wide range of sociological problems that are resulting from that very narrow focus. So um, again, I, I don't think we, we, uh, we comprehensively spelled out that case. I think, again, these, this, could, this book could have spun off into 10, 10 different books, but, but hopefully we give people an idea of, of how complex and important this is. And begin the conversation. So if people want to learn more, they can go and find some of the resources we use, but also there are people that are writing entire books about these. So this is to mm -hmm. begin the conversation that they can carry forward. You're both communications people. Uh, Melissa, you're with MobyCon. Yeah, so I work, yeah, I work with MobyCon as their international communications specialist. Uh, so my role is uh, very much uh, helping to export the knowledge. I work with the international team, uh, which are a series of engineers, planners, designers, uh, and communication specialists and policy specialists to export this Dutch knowledge uh, and help to adapt it uh, with local clients. We're, we're a private consultancy and we work with organizations and cities to uh, bring in new policies. So I work uh, outside of the Netherlands and in various places in Europe and then in North America to export this and uh, not only communicating that, but also working with local municipalities to help them develop communications plans because, uh, you know, Chris and I started recognizing that cities struggle to figure out how do we communicate what we're doing in terms of developing bikes, bicycle and pedestrian strategies. Um, how do we better communicate that to our, our residents so that they understand what we're doing and, and hopefully get on board as opposed to being um, oftentimes against it because of misinformation or otherwise. So that's what I do. Chris's role is a little bit different and a, a little bit broader in scope, I think. <laughs> I'll let you describe what you do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, the, so the Dutch Cycling Embassy is a, a network of 80 different organizations of which Melissa's MobiCon is one. And, and so we have obviously a broader mandate uh, and we also involve some of the public sector in the Netherlands. So we have municipalities and in universities and nonprofits uh, and, and the rail infrastructure company, the rail operator uh, here, but we're bringing teams of Dutch experts to cities, regions around the world to again, help them import this knowledge. And, and while I have marketing communication in my, uh, my title, and, and it is a large part of what I do, we're such a small team that it really is uh, a little bit of everything and, and especially having this outsider's view, it's, it's helping them understand what these places in the world need because they're not all as fortunate as the Netherlands in terms of their, their uh, great cycle-friendly streets. Do you ever think of the Netherlands as being kind of like a alien civilization? You know, like we're always looking with our telescopes and things for uh, intelligent life in the universe. And we're thinking maybe they're just too advanced and so we can't see them, you know, and but maybe we should look uh, just to the Netherlands, um, you know, and, and like you guys are actively trying to reach out to us. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe we should point our telescopes at you all. Well, this is the, I think the struggle that we had when we first visited here in 2016 is we were so blown away by how everything related to their cycling culture was operating at a scale far beyond our wildest dreams in terms of the size of the bicycle parking facilities, the, the way the cycle tracks had been built at a width and a, an integration and the intersection design that we immediately became really de de <laughs> deflated because we knew that a city even like Vancouver, which had made a lot of progress, was 
decades, 50, 60 years behind, even in our wildest dreams, we would not see that in our lifetimes. But I think it's important to keep in mind that this is, the Netherlands is perhaps the end goal. And, and there's a lot to learn from this country that went through a trial and error period, made a lot of mistakes along the way, and can now help advise the world as to what is best practice on a lot of these topics from intersection design to bicycle parking to, to cycle track integration. So um, we're in this position now where we get to to be the teacher, if you will, and helping cities understand why this matters and, and how it can be done uh, at a speed and a, a success level that uh, maybe the Netherlands didn't have uh, when it first was getting started in the 1970s. You know, a lot of people say, well, we're not the Netherlands. I know that you have an answer for that. Yeah, the Netherlands wasn't the Netherlands <laughs> up to, we were just actually today walking through the Central Market Square here in Delft and as late as 2004, uh, there were, it was a parking lot. So this massive historic square that is surrounded by one of the oldest churches in the country and the former city hall is an old building as well, used to be a parking lot. So to say that uh, no city can be like the Netherlands is, uh, yeah. It's a it's a false statement. Just as like just as often as we hear, you know, the Netherlands is flat, so that's where people cycle here. There are countless places around the world that are equally as flat as the Netherlands that don't have the cycling numbers that are here. It's uh, we often say Los Angeles, <laughs> Los Angeles, for example. You know, it's it takes political will and it takes courage to understand that there is another option out there. And I know, you know, Los Angeles is one of those cities that's gotten started um but you know there's still room to grow and room to adapt and room to improve and yeah i think there are a lot of arguments we hear all the time about why cities can't do what the dutch have done and it's not a matter of we never say it's copy paste it's a matter of finding the inspiration here seeing what is possible and then finding out how figuring out how to adapt that to a local context maybe i could play the devil's advocate for a second here and say there is something about Dutch culture which is unique. Because in your book, I found out about the polder method. Mm -hmm. And then I looked up polder, which is you're draining, you drain the swamp and then you put walls around it. People have to cooperate just because of the physical necessity of maintaining your environment together. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, it's referred to as the polar model because it, this level of cooperation and collaboration started as they were building the country out of the, the North Sea and, and, and the deltas and the seabeds, uh, draining the land for farming and habitation. Uh, and that's carried straight through to the present day where you see at a political level from the national government all the way down to the municipal governments, there is no one party that dominates. Uh, here in Delft, for example, a city of 100,000 people, we have 37 seats on council, and uh, it's broken up between, I think, 10 or 11 parties. So no party has more than four or five seats on council. There's representation from the students, from the senior citizens. Uh, there's this really diverse cross-section of society that sits at the decision-making table and, and votes on, on these decisions. And I think uh, it's perhaps a lesson that we can all learn is... is instead of having uh, the most affluent or just certain voices represented at a table, they bring everybody with them and, and find the best solution that suits everybody's needs and necessities. And uh, maybe that's part of the, the contributing factor to the, the success here, but uh, you know, there's no reason that, that uh, again, we can't take this as inspiration and apply it to other places. 
Well, and I think yeah. in the in the first book, in building cycling city, building yeah, building the cycling city, um, you know, we part of that book was also looking at other examples in North America where a lot of these ideas are being put into place by people that are making the conscious decisions. So, uh, sure. You could say that the Dutch collaborative model is part of the reason that uh, the culture here is part of the reason that it's so cycling friendly. But then you also can point to, you know, Vancouver was a great example of political leadership that really started to build out their cycling network. We're seeing similar things in other Canadian cities uh, like Edmonton and Calgary and Winnipeg. Um, <laughs> and and in, in America as well. And so Sure, there is something to be said about that collaborative model, but it's not to say that it isn't possible elsewhere and it doesn't ha it can't happen elsewhere. Um, but I think Chris made a good point about the, the representation uh, in the group is, is really important as well, because, yeah, when you have one group of people always making the decisions for how our cities and our communities are built, then you don't get a diverse idea of what the needs are within that city. So when we bring more people into the conversation, we can have that more collaborative view on how we can design our streets because more people's um, just experiences are informing those designs and those decisions. There's a quote from your book. It has to do with um, just the fact of riding a bicycle makes you cooperative as opposed to a car, which makes you the opposite. <laughs> yeah, cars put us in competition with each other where other human modes put us much more in cooperation. And, it, and it's just right down to the fact that you aren't surrounded by a metal box when you move on foot or on bicycle. You are forced to interact with your fellow uh, travelers. And so that inherently makes you more cooperative because you can see the person who will be impacted by your decision, whether you turn left, turn right, go straight. You can make that eye contact with each other and and navigate. It's, it, I liken it to uh, post-Christmas shopping at a, at a shopping mall. We all see each other. It's very, very busy in non-COVID times. And we all figure out through eye contact, through subtle gestures, you know, I'm going to go this way. You're going to go that way. Everyone will be fine. No one's bags are going to be dropped or, or mangled and everything works out. And, and cycling and walking are very much that on the street. They, they force us to see the people that we're moving around our cities with and to acknowledge them and give them space or them give us space in return. I think the, the quote you're thinking of, Nick, is, is something about uh, we're not the same, but we're worth the same. Um, and I'm not sure the, the exact Dutch translation, but it was just pointing out the egalitarian nature of, of Dutch society and how that transcends onto the streets. And I, I think it's interesting to think that um, because there are fewer cars, because there are more bicycles, because people are um, navigating these intersections and streets at the same level with the same um, amount of power, there's no power imbalance, um, that that ultimately breeds uh, more equity uh, and egalitarianism within society. So uh, it's maybe chicken and egg situation. Can you have that trust without building the road culture or or, or vice versa, do you have to have that trust in order to build the road culture? But I think there are instances, even in car-dominated cities, where we can introduce some ambiguity instead of always dictating people with stop signs and traffic lights and, uh, and uh, treating everybody like they're in a motor vehicle. One quote from your book that stood out to me was that Dutch engineers consider stop signs a design failure. Yes. I think yeah. that's hilarious. 
Exactly. And, and there's not a single stop sign. At least we haven't encountered one in Delft in this, this 25 square kilometer city of 100,000 people, not a single stop sign because almost all of the streets are 30 kilometers an hour or less. Uh, and then that's in those instances, people can use eye contact, can use uh, body language and, and, and social cues to navigate the, the, these intersections. And sometimes there's road markings pasted, uh, painted on the ground, the shark's teeth that indicate who has to yield to who. But uh, never are you expected to come to a complete stop. And, and in fact, the, the priority is always to keep the, uh, the bicycles and, and the pedestrians moving because they are the mode of travel that, uh, that we should be prioritizing in cities. Uh, and so they, the traffic lights are actually balanced to give them maximum flow if there are traffic lights at all. You know what I've noticed is taking off the roundabout. That's one aspect that we seem to be incorporating all of a sudden. Is that like something that is best practice? Um, no, I think roundabouts are put in when it's deemed uh, necessary to maintain flow. I don't, I couldn't say exactly, you know, the firm policy on that, but I think the reason that we're seeing the prevalence of them more and more outside the Netherlands, but also in the Netherlands, uh, is because when designed properly, it's actually one of the most efficient ways we've found in our personal experience uh, to navigate an intersection. So I think of the one that we, we use Delft all the time. Uh, so pedestrians and cyclists have priority traveling around this uh, massive roundabout that also uh, contains tram traffic and bus traffic. And the only time they actually have to stop when you're, when you're on a bike or on foot is when those public transport uh, modes are going through. Um, but what has happened in doing that is, uh, although that was a part of a road diet that took the main car roads from four lanes down to two, it's actually maximized the flow for cars as well. So when bikes aren't there, they can just keep traveling through and everything runs smoothly. When a bike is there, they have to, or a pedestrian, they have to stop briefly. And so what's been found in the research there is it's actually safer and more efficient for all the modes because it just, it just allows people to flow um, more easily. Uh, and yeah, it's, I mean, we've found it to be super efficient, but it has to be designed properly. And I think that's one of the cruxes that we're seeing outside the Netherlands is that a roundabout is put in, but not much thought is brought into how cars interact with pedestrians and cyclists, if there are cyclists in the, allowed in that space as well. Um, and this is where the design comes in. So we talk about in the book, in Curbing Traffic, about how when you're in an intersection, whether it's a roundabout or an intersection, cars are forced to almost be perpendicular to the cycling and uh, pedestrian crossings, which forces them to see uh, if there is anyone, if there's a vulnerable road user there, so they know to stop, they have enough time to stop as well. And very rarely are there two lane roundabouts uh, in, uh, anywhere in the Netherlands because they are deemed unsafe because you have that extra gap of a, a visual impairment really when you're driving a car to see beyond the car next to you if you're you know if you're on that outside lane of a pedestrian or cyclist waiting there so yeah design is really important having the waiting bays for when you're a pedestrian or a cyclist are important so that you it helps to minimize the amount of time you have to cross a road but I think overall uh, roundabouts are just deemed uh, more efficient, really, when we're talking, 
you know, we talk about how it's not about making improving flow or moving as many cars as possible, but roundabouts actually manage to do that without really anyone's time or ec economies of time being affected. The Netherlands is like just the opposite of America or other countries, a lot of most other countries where um, the priority is to keep the cyclists moving and pedestrians and cyclists have a continual green light and drivers have to, they have to beg for permission to cross the foot and cycle path. And it's just the opposite of how it is most other places. I, you had a great quote, we're not the same, but we're worth, worth the same. Yes. It's built. It's not about signs that say, please slow down. It's not about speed limits that may or may not be enforced. Mm -hmm. You are put in a situation where you have to acknowledge people and cars are guests, not the opposite. Yeah, no, and, and it's exactly what you were saying earlier. The, the engineering profession here has accepted that they have a responsibility to keep people safe, to design for the speeds that they want in their city instead of passing the buck uh, and, and just accepting death and injury as a, a fact of life. And to a lot of people that's revolutionary to us. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's quite clear and obvious that that should be the case in our, in our built environments, but we still have a long way to go to, I think, overhaul this profession that's been taught the maximum speed and efficiency of, of motor vehicles is all that matters because obviously there's, uh, much more at play and and uh, and the high fatality rate in in US cities versus Dutch cities uh, speaks to that uh, that difference in approach shall we say you did a lot of research for this book obviously you talked to Marco te Bramelstrut how do you say that Marco te Bramelstrut oh that's close okay so he he used the term homo economicus in the chapter of the feminist city, you talked about how what you yeah. measure is so important and homo economicus only measures things that have to do with the GDP or something, as opposed to all the other things like trip chaining. There's so many things that ought to be measured yeah. that, that aren't. Yeah, what is a common phenomenon, and it's actually, I mean, there's a great book uh, called Invisible Women that gets really into the data uh, gaps that exist specifically around women, but these, it extends beyond to um, people of color, to people with disabilities and so forth. But because we're so focused on homo economicus or the economic man and have been for a really long time, we only uh, seem to prioritize measurements that allow people to realize economic potential when it's around cars. So how do we uh, ensure that if a person is getting from their home to their job in the morning or vice versa, that we do that efficient as efficiently as possible. So that person is contributing economically to society uh, as best they can. But what that tends to do, or in that, what that absolutely does, is it leaves out all the other types of trips that people make in a day. Uh, and the reason that the feminist chapter focuses so much on that is because despite uh, gains in egalitarian share of work in households between uh, husbands and wives or both partners or men and women it's still oh, oh the care trips the trips that are, require taking kids to school picking up groceries running errands uh, taking care of elderly family uh, all those other trips that we make are still predominantly done by women and require as you said it re they require trip chaining which means that 
if we're only prioritizing people getting to and from work, we're not thinking of all the other destinations they need to go to. We're not thinking about how to connect that trip from home to school, to work, to all the other errands conveniently. Uh, and that was very much our experience, especially my experience in Vancouver, as wonderful as the cycling was, it was largely focused on the commute to work. So all of the gains were made in terms of uh, backstreet boulevards and bikeways, which were great for uh, maintaining speed and traveling longer distances, but were really bad when I had to pick up groceries after work or I had to get one of my kids to and from an activity. The places I needed to get to were not easy to walk or cycle to and I almost mandated having a car in some cases. So uh, it, it's just the way we design our cities if we continue to focus on the economic man and that model, we forget we're leaving out vast portions of the population. And the prosperous chapter extends on that because it talks about how, you know, when we're focused again on the commute, the nine to five, we're forgetting that not everyone works nine to five. Some people work night shifts, some people work part time. And so if our transport systems don't enable trips outside of peak hours, uh, whether that's reduced efficient or reduced schedules for public transport or roundabout routes to get you where you need to go or bike routes uh, that don't or bike networks that don't get you to the places you need to be, then we're leaving people out and we're forcing them to make uh, what can be a very expensive and costly choice for them. Speaking of costly choices, you talk about the, the costs to the person who has to keep a car, maintain a car, and also the hidden costs, the hidden social costs of car dependency. Who's the audience of this book? Is it engineers? And I think we wrote with uh, three or four different audiences in mind. You know, there is obviously the the committed engineer transport planner that follows us on social media and is going to uh, voraciously read this and 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 consume it and use it in their everyday advocacy and work. But I think we also wanted to yeah get it in front of. Um, a more general uh, reader, someone that may be generally interested in transport or cities, hasn't quite connected the dots yet in the hopes that we can, uh, because what we've seen over the years is most people intuitively get this stuff. They just haven't connected the dots yet. And when we go in front of a, a fresh audience um, that's not a committed bunch, we really like to try and, and see the moment in their faces when they realize, holy sh holy crap, you know, the traffic out my front door is making me less social. Holy crap, you know, the noise that those cars produces is making me less healthy. Uh, holy crap, we've raised an entire generation of children that are completely dependent on their parents for uh, their mobility needs. And, and that's really who we're, we're targeting now, I think, and, and trying to get uh, this message out into a broader, a broader audience. Early in the book, you just make such a great case for how kids are really not served by driving them everywhere. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that really has probably frustrated us over the years of being advocates is there's so much focus on people like us, our age, uh, largely white, um, in terms of how to make cycling better for them. And, you know, when we hear these bad faith arguments about driving, you know, everyone needs a car. It's like, okay, but you're forgetting everybody under the age of whatever the legal driving limit is in your country or your state or your province or what have you, you know, children can't drive. 
So the, and, but yet at the same time, we lament that children spend too much time indoors or they're not social enough or not active enough, but we've basically designed play and spontaneity and risk out of their lives by making streets hostile, making them unsafe, making parents not comfortable letting their children out, uh, out to roam the streets on their own, like many of us would have when we were children. And so that's why we started with that chapter because we feel it's the most compelling. It's like, if, if you need any argument whatsoever as to why we need to reduce the number of cars in our streets, it's because our absolute most vulnerable citizens, our children are being robbed of their childhood because our cars our cars are more important than they are. And so that's that's why we started there. And it happened in a generation. I mean, this is the frustrating thing. And, and perhaps the reason that we are optimistic is most parents had a very different childhood to their own. And, and um, they can remember what it was like to be able to ride bikes with their friends and go to the park and the water park or, you know, whatever at, at the corner store and and have freedom and, and the ability to roam their city unsupervised and unrestrained. And uh, it's just this, this exponential growth of traffic and, and limited growth of, of traffic and, and uh, this need to park uh, right outside our front door that, that stops us now from our children from being able to, to enjoy the same freedom and independence. And, and, and we can think of no better case, yeah, to, to, uh, to unravel this, this damage that we've done than, than uh, thinking of the children, because as we start with the quote from Charles Montgomery, we profess to care greatly about their their safety and their well-being, but we design places that that rob them of their freedom and put them in very hostile conditions. And and we really, if we are to live up to our stated aspirations of building cities and societies that care for children, then we much must do much better with the design of our our streets. So how do you go through a day without just screaming like constantly? I mean, I, I would think that really focusing on this would make you, well, I guess you live in a place where you don't have the car culture. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. I mean, when we were still living in Canada, there were certainly days and we would be very, very, very frustrated, but that's part of why we, we wrote the first book. And part of why we also wrote the second book is that's, that's our outlet. That's our way to, communicate to people why it's so important and, and what is possible. Um, and so that's, I think with us, it's very much focused on trying to help people find the way forward. Um, because I mean, if this social media has taught us anything, it's that negativity doesn't really do a whole lot to change the conversation. And so we really try to focus on sharing positive messages Sure, sometimes for some people uh, outside of the Netherlands, it might seem uh, fantastical or, or unreachable, but the idea that we try to include with our messaging is that, as we said at the beginning, the Netherlands wasn't always this way. And there is, there is a future where we can get to a place where it's not just the Netherlands that enjoys this, it's more and more spaces and cities and communities, it's big and small that can achieve this. Um, yeah, it's just, we've, try to give the recipe and the case for it. And uh, we'll continue to share that message for as long as we can to help cities find uh, a sustainable and human scale path forward. I, I kind of wanted a timeline of how Netherlands became the Netherlands. And you do give it, you give a lot of it. It's not gonna be just exactly what happened in the Netherlands. No, right? 
it's very much going to be uh everyone's going to have every city every community every town uh, has their own journey uh to make and what we said with the first book and we continue to say now is that uh, the Netherlands could provide the inspiration uh, to make those changes. Um, as Chris said earlier, they made a bunch of mistakes, a lot of mistakes. But now in our minds, other cities can learn from that and, and avoid some of those mistakes to really um, leapfrog forward and, and not take 50 years to get to this point because we can't anymore. We can't take 50 years anymore. Well, and you're seeing now Paris and London in particular kind of these hotbeds, especially post COVID of implementing some of these ideas that were inspired by the Netherlands, but making them work for their specific context. And Sadiq Khan and, and Hidalgo can be commended for that. So hopefully, you know, we're talking uh, a decade from now and, and people are pointing to London and Paris as inspiration for their cities rather than the Netherlands because the Netherlands cannot and, and should not be the only example that, that people uh, point to. That's a good teaching way of putting it. You're not teaching if people are, are not out on their own learning for themselves. And I guess the same applies to cities. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing I wanted to ask was, what about the rural areas? What's yeah. the thinking? So it's, it's interesting. It comes up, uh, you know, fairly regularly. You know, what about small towns? What about countrysides? And the, what, uh, what we've discovered uh, living here is that with the right intercity connections, and the right planning uh, in terms of these rural areas, uh, you can live out of the city and still enjoy a lot of the low car lifestyle. So we can cycle um, from where we are in Delft to several small towns uh, via uh, a robust intercity connection uh, cycle routes. And, you know, it's, they're not glamorous. They're literally asphalt next to some polders, <laughs> um, but they do connect people. So they provide options and, and you know, the e-bike extends that even further to give people more mobility options. So, you know, they don't have to default to always driving. I mean, I, you know, we point out that the rate of driving in the Netherlands is as high, if not higher as many than many other European nations. But the, the difference is that they drive when they need to most of the time and otherwise we'll walk and cycle. And so in all of it, it's all about providing options and giving people choice. Yeah, well, great, thank you. I, I wanna give you a couple of suggestions. One is a SWAT team of people like you to come into all these hotspots around the world where people are fighting business districts over protected bike lanes. We'd push back on that a little bit. We're not necessarily the people that should be coming in and telling people what they want and what we, they need, it's better to just ask the community. And I think if you do your engagement process correctly, if you're asking uh, a truly representative cross-section of, of society from the, the, not just the business owners, obviously, but people with disabilities, the aging population, children, especially um, uh, women, uh, people of color, then you can come up with the, the solution that works for that particular street in that particular context. And I think part of the problem that got us in this mess is, is technocrats that thought they knew best um, and, and implemented solutions without giving consideration to all of those, those people and those demographic groups. And um, the least we can do moving forward is, is ask them what they want. And, and I think we'll find at least, uh, uh, you know, 15 years in, in this field has shown us is that people overwhelmingly, yes, want safe space for cycling. They want safe space for their kid to cross the street. They want uh, more vibrant public spaces where they can 
uh, eat a dinner uh, without, uh, you know, um, having cars washing by their 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 table. And and um, if we do the the engagement and consultation process right, I think we'll find that the consensus in our cities is for human centric design. We just need to uh, make sure we're asking the right people. That's the right answer, of course. Thank you so much. Maybe uh, Bike Talk can become the official uh, podcast of the Dutch Cycling Embassy. What do, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Unfortunately, I'm only I'm a one man, one person marketing and communication department, and I'm trying to do so many different things uh, that uh, maybe this is a, an area where I can outsource some uh, <laughs> some uh, Marcom because uh, there aren't enough hours in the day and there aren't enough days in the week. All right. Well, more power to you and everything you do. And I hope that your kids are continuing to be amazing in their new environment. And um, thanks for the book. We hope people see fit to pick up a copy. Uh, it is available where all books are sold. Uh, and please do recommend it to a friend, please do review it on whatever website that you do. Uh, we don't have the big marketing uh, department and, and dollars behind us. So we're relying heavily on our audience and, and word of mouth to, to spread this book around. And we've even seen now crowdfunding campaigns pop up. People are buying 20 or 30 copies and sending them to their mayor and council. And, and we think this is a great idea to yeah, get this message in front of the right people and, and start transforming our cities for the better. Well, you have an amazing Twitter following. Everything you put out there gets like a thousand retweets. I've noticed. And we always say the Dutch cycling photos are the cat videos of the urban planning world. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Chris and Melissa. It was great yeah, talking thanks. to you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Cheers, Nick. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 